Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. There was a time in this country when a person could go to jail for not paying debts, even if the failure to pay was not willful, but because of lack of means. However, by the 1900s, formal debtor's prison was outlawed in this country. Debtor's prison is also unconstitutional under the North Carolina Constitution, which provides in Article 1, Section 8, that there shall be no imprisonment for debt in this state. Notwithstanding the clear language of our state constitution, the structure of our state criminal justice system routinely imprisons people for no reason other than their inability to pay a court-imposed debt. And the failure to pay, because of the inability to do so, often results in the imposition of even more fines, which results in even greater debt and hardship. We've talked before on this show about how the criminal justice system treats black and brown people more harshly than white. This same system treats poor people more severely than those with means, causing poor people to suffer greater criminal consequences than those with means who commit the same offenses. On today's show, we're going to talk about the extreme challenges faced by low-income people in dealing with the criminal justice system in North Carolina and how the system has resulted in the criminalization of poverty and the unequal treatment of the poor in this state. Joining us tonight to discuss these issues are Laura Holland. She is staff attorney with the North Carolina Justice Center, where she works for the Fair Chance Criminal Justice Project. I should say that Attorney Holland is a proud graduate of North Carolina Central University School of Law (laughs) and one of my former students. (laughs) Also joining us in the studio is Keisha Millett, community advocate for the Reinvestment Partners. She's the author of a report titled The Debt Spiral, Enforcement of Criminal Justice Debt in North Carolina, which was released last year. I want to thank you both for joining us this evening on the Legal Eagle Review. Thank Thank you you for for having us. us. So I'm going to have us start off by having each one of you talk about your uh, respective organizations and what you do within the organizations. Uh, Laura, we'll start with you. Okay, I work for the North Carolina Justice Center. We're North Carolina's largest nonprofit that focuses on poverty. Um, More specifically, I work with the the DEER office, which is the Durham Expungement and Driver's License Restoration Project. And my focus is driver's license restoration, where we're trying to kind of combat a long-term driver's license suspension for unpaid traffic tickets. And when we say long-term, we're talking about people who have been suspended for not being able to pay their traffic tickets for two years or longer. And I work for Reinvestment Partners, uh, which is an economic justice nonprofit. And so my work has focused on criminal justice debt, doing research and advocacy related to policy and other practices um, that could be implemented at a state and local level. Okay, so um, in in talking about this discussion in terms of court-imposed Uh, charges and fines and also kind of incorporated in this discussion of uh, court-imposed debt. 
We can also think about the bail system. We can think about forfeitures. We're going to really kind of focus our discussion today on fines and, and fees and, and, uh, and other charges. So why don't you to provide our audience with kind of a description of how court costs and fees work in our court systems here in North Carolina? So um, in our court system in North Carolina, uh, someone may have certain legal financial obligations. Um, we described kind of a variety that may take place. But uh, particular court fines are those fines that are intended as punishment, and that's imposed when someone is convicted of certain violations of criminal law. And so that fine amount may vary, mm -hmm. and it's also something that a judge has the discretion to waive or decide that the judge will not impose that particular criminal fine. Um, fees, however, are administrative costs that are imposed essentially for court operations. So it's like the cost of court. Um, and they are explicitly not intended as punishment. However, there is a much greater barrier to waiving these fees. Mm -hmm. And these fees are set based on a fee schedule that exists. And so um, depending on uh, the nature of the conviction, there are certain fees that apply, with a big chunk of that being um, for the General Court of Justice. Well, how, what, what, how much are the uh, court costs? Let's, let's, let's start with, with, with that. Right. So I'm trying to do the numbers in my head right now. So a court cost, I believe, can start at about 146.50. That's the General Court of Justice basic cost. And then there are additional costs that are added on to that. And so it can get up in, um, it can certainly range, I think. I'm not sure. Right. The so for number. in district court, the General Court of Justice fee starts at 147.50. Um, and then in Superior Court, it's about 154. But with other required um, administration costs, if you have an infraction in district court, you're going to start at 178. And then if you have a um, a criminal charge in district court, you're going to start about 188. Um, traffic ticket will start you at 190. And that's without all the additional things that can be attacked on. Um, for example, if you fail to appear to traffic court, that's another $200 court cost um, that's associated. Um, paying late would be another $50. So, But you're starting generally around the 178 um, so, But tag. then the district court costs mm -hmm. are lower than the superior court costs. Yes. So if a case goes up to superior court for whatever reason, right. what, what are the costs there? In Superior Court, you're going to start about one, I believe it's about 190 as well. Um, but like you said, you already have to deal with the court costs that are coming from district court. If you if a situation where you appeal it up to Superior Court, you have to deal with the court costs from district court and Superior Court. So the likelihood of a person, let's say with a, 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 a typical speeding ticket, mm -hmm. uh, exceeding safe speed, for instance, uh, you could have a $5 fine or a $10 fine, but you end up owing in excess of $200 mm -hmm. just because you had to go to court. Yeah. That's reality. And if you can't pay that day, um, so you most of you're going to add an, insta an installment fee, which is $20. So, yes. And then interest as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, does interest? Well, 
interest in that, like, if you pay late or the stomach fee. So, yeah, it, it just keeps, it can balloon out of control. And for certain traffic violations, if you can't pay the installment fee that day, then you get an automatic revocation of your driver license after mm -hmm. a certain period of days because you didn't pay the cost. Now, it may be that, that some listeners are saying, okay, yes, you know, $200 traffic ticket, and so many of us have been there, mm -hmm. uh, and no one <laughs> likes to pay that. But, but I'm not sure that um, folks who are not familiar with the, the circumstances of, of those that live at a certain um, economic level, why that, that $200 might be so devastating mm -hmm. for a family or an individual. Can you all kind of talk about how something that might seem, um, you know, not incredibly onerous, you know, frustrating that you have to pay mm -hmm. 200 but not, you know, uh, it's not going to break the bank, uh, why it's so devastating for some in our community? Well, for some people, $200 will break the bank. Uh, I saw a statistic that last night when I was just looking over things that says that 80% of the people who come through the criminal justice system can be qualified as being indigent. And so what I see, I, see, I meet a lot of individuals who um, are really in that situation where they are low-income individuals and they cannot pay that $200. I've seen people having to face decisions on whether to pay their rent this month or to pay that $200 traffic ticket. I had one young lady who had just made her way into school and she had to pay her tuition. And what she told me was, I just won't pay my tuition um, and get kicked out of school because I cannot lose my driver's license because I have children who I have to transport back and forth to school. And, and that was the situation she was faced. We were able to get it reduced so she didn't have to do that, but that's the reality of a lot of individuals that I represent. And when you talk about people who are low income, isn't there an issue now with the type of representation? So you were able to offer assistance mm -hmm. to someone who found herself in a situation where she really needed some counsel. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the law in North Carolina has changed such that there are some people who are in that situation and they're not able to get uh, counsel. Can you talk a little bit about the, the now the dilemma that we have where people may not have even an opportunity to get counsel or to get representation to help them lower those fees and costs? So in an attempt to save money, the General Assembly changed the law so that now people who have class three misdemeanors or lower level things won't qualify to get the court appointed counsel or the public defender representation. So we see a lot of clients who do fall in that category of charges who can't afford to, to hire an attorney um, because an attorney might cost a lot of money outside of their financial means, but also because of the nature of their charges aren't eligible to get um, public assistance, uh, an attorney through the, the public system. And so they they have to fend for themselves. And, and we know that the law is complicated. And a lot of people don't know that they can request reductions in their court costs. Um, and so they don't. And then they're strapped with this fee that they couldn't pay even, unless they hit the lottery or something miraculous happened. So, yeah. Well, what's at level, what, what offenses are included in the level three? misdemeanors? So some, like a lot of traffic tickets are within that category. Possession of marijuana is another charge that we see a lot where people can't get representation because it's a class three misdemeanor. And so, and those, and traffic tickets and marijuana is, there are, there are charges that happen very often and they come with real fees and court costs. And so, 
Yeah. And, and, in, and in those cases, it's unlikely that the person is going to go to jail. Right. Because typically if you go to jail, well, if you go to jail, you still have to pay the court costs. Right, because the jail fee is about $40 a night. Yeah. Right. So that's but typically at, 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 at uh, the uh, level three, uh, the person isn't going to go to jail. So they're mm-hmm. just racking up additional court costs, mm-hmm. uh, even if the fines are minimal. Correct. Mm-hmm. We'd love to make a point about court costs in North Carolina. Um, so one thing that's really important for us to think about in the context is that, as I mentioned before, court costs are these administrative costs, these sort of user fees for mm-hmm. access to the courts. And um, one thing that we know in North Carolina history is that uh, prior to the 90s, there were no court costs that were imposed. Started at about a minimum of $50 in the 90s, mm-hmm. and then now has cleared up to the amounts that Laura mentioned earlier. And so just want to note that the rate of increase of those court costs is, has not been very clearly um, explained or mm-hmm. supported. And so it's just an amount that's been almost seemingly arbitrarily decided upon as a a fee that people should pay to access the courts. And so a lot of advocates view this as a regressive tax Mm -hmm. because it's essentially charging the people who need to go and need to have access to the courts these additional costs um, that are being imposed on them individually and and creating that cost burden. Okay, now for our audience, who decides what what these costs are? Right. And who will bear the burden of them? Okay, so I mean, a very a lot of this is is coming through the general assembly. The legislature. So, yes, mm-hmm. the legislature. The legislators who are elected <laughs> to represent the people yes. are imposing these costs on anyone who goes into the uh, court system. Legislators that we can vote in or vote out. Right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And, um, and and then the burden, as you mentioned, is then being imposed on people who may uh, qualify for indigent, um, uh, uh, maybe qualify as indigent and qualify for a court-appointed attorney. Uh, want to also just note that even when someone does qualify for a court-appointed attorney, there's still an additional fee mm-hmm. that's imposed for that for having the attorney. So there's fees for, for everything right. that you get. Yes. Um, and Keisha, to kind of go back to your point about in the 90s, there, you know, to the extent there were any court costs, they were incredibly low. And, and why it is, can you explain why it is that the General Assembly might be increasing uh, not only the number of costs, but also the amount of, of these costs? So I guess one theory could be this idea of shifting, using the language loosely, shifting from a progressive tax to a regressive tax. So deciding rather than incorporating those costs in other ways in the budget, that they would actually just be pulled from the individuals that are using the court system. So that increase being costs that would cover the cost of the general court of justice, costs of law enforcement, um, retirement, and other other costs, rather than having it as a separate budget item that's imposed through a general population tax. So this is more like a user's cost. Right. You know, if exactly. you if you are using the system, mm-hmm. then you have to uh, then you have to pay, and your poverty is uh, of no consequence in determining uh, whether you uh, should uh, be required to pay or not. Mm-hmm. Now, how 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 many people are we talking about per year? That's caught up with uh, the uh, payment of these uh, court costs. And I'm not going to get into fines yet, but just, just the court costs. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. I don't actually have that number. Yeah. But what, what we do know is that a large percentage, overwhelming percentage, are poor people right. and black and brown people. Right. And, and when we think about this regressive tax, you know, this is the same legislature that is reducing taxes for the top, you know, yeah. uh, wealthiest people yeah. in the yeah. state. So on the one hand, we've got a reduction in tax for those people at the top. And then we've got an increase in tax, essentially, for those that are at the very bottom who can least afford it. And this, you know, w w some people who are, you know, kind of in this space that are that are talking about this issue um, see this as kind of like a revenue generating system. And this was something that the Justice Department reported on in Ferguson when mm -hmm. they did that report um, and that, you know, targeting poor people, black and brown people, that was part of the means by which the municipality was generating revenue. Is that part of what we're seeing here in the state of North Carolina? Right. So definitely there's this um, you can see that there could be, a, to at least to some extent, a perverse incentive created, um, whereas if you know that someone will end up getting, say, a traffic violation conviction, there's a small amount of that that, for example, goes towards the law enforcement retirement fund. Different from Ferguson, um, where the money went directly to the local munis municipality in North Carolina, the money goes, most of the money goes directly to the state, and then 60 uh, agencies or local entities. So it's slightly different, um, but there's still definitely concerns about um, if you want to keep the court running and moving, you'll need the dollars to do it. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking about the uh, consequences of court fines and fees in uh, North Carolina. Our guest, uh, Laura Holland, who is a staff attorney at the uh, North Carolina Justice Center, and Keisha Millett, who is the community advocate for uh, Reinvestment Partners, and they have been working uh, with this uh, problem associated with the payment or non-payment of uh, court costs and fines and uh, want you to uh, stay with us. So we're going to take a break uh, right now and we'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu.
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. We're talking about consequences of court fines and fees. And uh, our guests have uh, provided us with uh, some startling uh, information uh, about uh, the court cost process and the consequences uh, of that. Uh, a person who is unable to pay their court costs and fines, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming that they have been placed on uh, probation mm -hmm. for the most part, what are the consequences for their inability or their failure to meet those uh, monetary obligations? Well, for someone who is on probation, a lot of the time, paying your court costs is, is part of your sentence or part of that probationary condition. And so someone who fails to pay that um, can be exposed to, uh, they could possibly exposed to incarceration, but more more than likely what they'll be exposed to is an extension of their probationary period, which means more exposure to the criminal justice system, which means more accumulation of fines and fees because every month you're on probation, especially if it's supervised probation, you're going to have to pay that $40 supervised probation fee. Well, if, if, if you don't pay, then you there's a possibility that you go to jail to serve whatever sentence was, was, right. was imposed. If the person serves the sentence, do they still have to pay the court costs? Yes, they would still have to pay their court costs unless the, the judge, the court, in their wisdom decides to waive it. So the court costs will be with them always. Yes. Uh, no matter what ever else happens, they are going to always be subject to being able to go back to jail because they are unable to pay the court costs, if that is the situation that they find themselves in. Um, I believe once they do the jail sentence, as long as they're not on probation, they'll be out of the realm of the criminal court. Um, but that 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 court cost will still be on them. And so what what usually happens is that you'll see that attached to people's tax returns. So if they they don't pay their court costs, then it'll attach to their tax returns. So then when they go get that state tax returns, it gets. Um, taken through the collection agency system. So you see that a lot. Um, so they might be outside the reach of the criminal justice system and not exposed to more jail time, but there are consequences for not paying. Yeah, that. and I think the process is to get a lien, mm -hmm. that the county gets a lien against them that attaches, and that any income that they uh, get after that can be attached uh, to uh, satisfy the, uh, the lien. Uh, that they have. I know they do that with uh, uh, attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lien that uh, that is attached uh, to it. Um, and then you said that, that some people then will end up in traffic uh, situations with losing their license. Right. And uh, so in North Carolina, most times without even assessing whether the person is able to pay, um, the statute says that if someone doesn't pay, then the, the Division of Motor Vehicles has to take their driver's license. And so, um, and that's after not paying for a 40-day period, then the DMV would just suspend your driver's license. And so what that usually ends up looking like is someone's driver's license gets suspended. Um, we, see, we know that 75% of people who have suspended driver's license continue to drive, and so then they are charged with driving more license revoke, which they more than likely plead to, and, it, and then that's another court cost, another set of court cost fines and fees, and then they continue to drive. And so it just, 
becomes this spiral of debt that people can't pay and will never be able to pay. And let's ex- talk about why it is that they do continue to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, well, people continue to drive because they have to get to work. Um, they have to get the housing. And in, in some places in North Carolina, the public transportation system is not efficient enough to help them get to work um, when they need to get to work. I, I think I saw a study the other day that said only about 30% of jobs with where people work are able to get to their job in a 90-minute period. And then also people can't afford to, to pay for Ubers and Lyfts and rideshare systems to get to work. And so it's just much more efficient and much more cost-effective for them just to drive. And people are forced into this position where they can risk exposure to the criminal justice system or risk going into debt trying to Uber everywhere. And so most people just choose to take the risk and continue to drive. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back just one one quick second. Um, the probation you were talking about, you know, paying your, your court costs and, and the, the fines are a condition of probation. And if you are delayed in paying that, you might incur even more um, uh, costs. And your probation may be extended. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that, that we talk about on this show frequently is, of course, um, the right to vote and, and mm-hmm. exercising that right. So can you talk about some of the other collateral consequences of extending one's um, probation? Keisha, I see you nodding your head yes. pretty vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I believe there was an article that came out um, not too long ago in the News and Observer that was focusing on this very issue mm-hmm. where um, someone... Um, their probation might have been extended because they couldn't afford to pay their outstanding court costs and then um, they were not able to vote. And in this instance, I believe what happened was that they didn't realize that they were not able to vote and ended up um, having some trouble in Alamance County. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is a real issue because when you think about uh, probation violations and what may constitute that and how that's determined, um, it definitely uh, positions people to, to have kind of a continued lack of access to um, what we would think would be kind of your right to vote or other other rights that we might have. And the other thing with probation is you have to keep going back to court. Mm-hmm. And every time you go back to court um, to report, you've got to think about taking time off work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to potentially think about child care. I mean, there are just so many other consequences from just talking about extending probation when it all is being driven by your ability to pay right. those costs. Mm-hmm. It, it, the extension of probation has nothing to do with, you know, the offense that you committed. Right. It not, just has to do with your yeah, inability to pay. It's not a public safety thing. It's, it's about access to money. Yeah. Well, isn't there also a uh, probation supervision fee that attaches to uh, those individuals who are under... Uh, 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 active uh, uh, or supervised probation? Right. The While you're under supervised probation, it's about $40 a month um, that you have to pay. So when probation gets extended, that's more months of paying that $40 a month. So not only do you have to pay the, the $200, mm-hmm. uh, but then every month they right. add on another $40 just uh, for the uh, purpose of uh, supervising you while you're on probation, which typically means that you have to report one day uh, a month or one day a week uh, to a probation mm-hmm. officer. That's and if you, 
Right. Oh, and then if you're required to take a drug class or other something else, like community service, there are fees attached for that as well. So, Keisha, you were talking about the difference between fines and fees, and you were saying that judges are able to waive um, fines, the court costs, Mm -hmm. and the other administrative costs. They don't have quite as much flexibility. Can you talk a little bit about how judges go about, and let's kind of focus on the fines for a minute, how judges go about deciding whether to waive fines or not? Mm -hmm. Well, so my understanding is that uh, when it comes to waiving a fine, it's it's at the discretion of the judge and they don't necessarily have to show cause, like show why the fine has to be waived. They can decide based on um, what's presented that they would waive it. Um, the fine also, like Laura mentioned, tends to be a much, much smaller mm-hmm. amount than the actual cost. Whereas with the cost, so a judge can waive court costs, but um, as Laura also mentioned, um, there have been fairly recent um, state laws that make it basically have a chilling effect on waiving because of the notice that you have to provide to all the agencies that might be affected and also a a shame report that gets put out um, that makes it very unappealing for a judge to to do what judge actually has the discretion to do. And then the judge also has to be able to show, um, have some showing of why that particular fee might might be waived. And so what's this shame report? (laughs) So it's not the official name, (laughs) but but it is essentially, it's an annual report um, that is produced that shows the number of waivers by judge by county. And so you can see who has the highest and who has the lowest. Mm -hmm. And um, the way the report is framed and kind of what seems to be the intent behind it is to discourage judges from having high waiver numbers because I guess it's seen as letting people off easy or something like that. And and it's working. We know that that list has had a chilling effect on judges. Every time I go in front of a judge, um, one well, many times, not every time, one of the comments that I get back from judges, well, your name is not going to appear on this report. Is my name going to re- appear on this report? So why should I take the risk for this client um, to and, and expose myself to exposure um, from or expose myself to scrutiny from the community for waiving his debt. And so what we've seen that in the last two or three years after the list has taken effect, waivers have uh, dropped from about $80,000 a year to about $25,000 a year. So it's <laughs> the shame list, quote-unquote, is working. Well, who, who prepares this, uh, the, this, this shame list, and what is the authorization for the preparation of, uh, of this list? Well, the administration of the court. Administration or, administrative oh, the, Office of the Court? Yeah, the Administration Office of the Court, or the AOC, is the one who prepares the list and publishes it every year. And it was, they're authorized by the general statute, well, required by the general statute to do so. So, again, this is the uh, General Assembly, the legislators, mm-hmm. uh, who are there mandated that there be this report and that it be released. Yeah. Is that? Published online every year. And, and you know, and, and this report is being published without, I think, the community really having context, mm-hmm. right? And so when we think about our judges being elected officials right. and, you know, you've got an election year coming up and you know that if someone's running against you, they're going to be looking at that report mm-hmm. so that they could take the numbers if you've got very high waiver 
um, numbers to say that you're soft on crime right. or that you're not making people responsible and you know it, but without really understanding the context of how the poor um, just become poorer right. and the communities just become poor you can't really understand that data mm-hmm. um, and so it kind of goes back to you know the, the legislature has enacted this law and you really do have to ask yourselves you know like why what is the purpose behind it and I think the intended purpose is being realized it is and you know and this goes back to the whole issue of you know we were talking about voting and if you're on probation um, for a felony you're not able to vote and it it goes back to what type of political power do poor people have Mm low-income people have Um, and if you don't have that political power then you don't have anyone in the General Assembly who's looking out for you well, you know, I had, uh, I think uh, Laura and I talked earlier about uh, the number of people in Durham mm-hmm. who are unlicensed as a result of not being able to pay the uh, the court costs. And what, what is that number? Um, so one of, the lo- one of the things I work on is criminal justice debt that leads to driver's license suspension, and my focus is on Durham County. And so when we got the data from the administration, Administrative Office of the Courts in 2017, we saw that there were about 15,000 unpaid traffic tickets that were older than two years old that were leading to suspensions of driver's license in Durham County. And we thought, we also saw that on average, um, the average person in Durham County had a suspended driver's license that was about 16 and a half years old. So uh, it's it's a pervasive problem. Um, people, like I said, 75% of people continue to drive, so they rack up this unpaid traffic debt, and then they get suspended driver's license, which causes them to be uninsured because most people who have a suspended driver's license also aren't paying to keep up their insurance. We, we found out from um, Dale Murrell, who is a district att- attorney in Durham County, that Durham is the third highest accident site in North Carolina. So could you imagine all those people driving uninsured getting in accidents? Um, and and we know when you get in an accident with an uninsured driver, it devastates not only the uninsured driver, but the person who gets an accident with the uninsured driver. So this issue is not an issue that just impacts individuals who can't pay, but it impacts our whole community. And and on that point, when we think about community, uh, what about the family members of, of, of mm-hmm. these folks? So if you've got someone who can't drive um, and, and they're trying not to drive, mm-hmm. uh, Keisha, how does the family support, try to support them? And, and how might that affect, affect that, that kind of family unit? Right. I was just uh, talking to someone the other day who was dealing with this very instance, um, uh, being in a position where um, she doesn't have her her driver license has been revoked um she is expecting a child and has a young daughter and so she is constantly having to reach out to her relatives and her friends in order to get around get to her doctor's appointments um and be able to meet her basic needs and um she's in a position where she really wants to do what she can to support her family but she she also feels that she cannot take the risk of driving and so she has to rely on other people and um as she described it wait until they finish everything that they need to do and then they can help support her and uh, attend to what her needs are 
And then it's also difficult, I would imagine, for her to have uh, to be gainfully employed if she doesn't have transportation. And then who supports those individuals who are not able to work because they can't drive? And again, it goes to their family. So when we talk about the the devastating impact that these um, this system has, uh, like you were saying, Laura, it's not just that individual, mm-hmm. but it's the families, it's the communities, it's the you know the entire you know area. So. Um, uh, it just, uh, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> well, what has been the response from the community about uh, this issue? Or is the community aware that this is an issue? Well, I, I think the community is get, becoming aware. We have uh, these conversations quite often, especially in the Triangle region. I think one of the things that we're trying to do, which we've been going on campaigns as a coalition, we have a North Carolina Fines and Fees Coalition. We're trying to get the word out to more rural areas Um, because we know know that people experience these things, but a lot of the issue is that people can't, they don't understand that this is like a pervasive systemic issue. They think that it's just an issue they're dealing with or their family dealing with. So we want to get the messaging out that this is a systemic issue that a lot of people are going through and that if we build, if we build power then we can change it and so and then there is a lot of efforts on the state legislature level to kind of change some of these things we've been working on bills to help uh, modify the driver's license suspension laws we've been as a coalition been going after some of the um, laws that require the imposition of fines and fees to try to insert ability to pay determinations um, at sentencing, requiring the judges to inquire about someone's ability to pay that fine, that fee, that court cost before they even impose it. So they, so that the person would never even face exposure to going into default on some of this uh, criminal justice money. Um, and we've also, of course, been advocating to the judges to just go ahead and do, just go ahead and do it. Just make it a policy while they're on the bench to assess people's ability to pay at the time of sentencing. Okay. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about how the North Carolina court fines and fees systems has resulted in um, the devastation of a community that can least afford this devastation. And and that community is a community of people who are low income. Uh, We have with us in the studio, Laura Holland. She is a staff attorney with the North Carolina Justice Center. And Keisha Millette, she is a community advocate for the Reinvestment Partners. And we're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you will stay with us. We'll be right back. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. 
its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Keisha Millette, community advocate for the Reinvestment Partners, and Laura Holland, staff attorney for the North Carolina Justice Center. And we've been talking about the North Carolina criminal justice system and the toll that it takes on low-income, our low-income community Um so, Laura, right before the break, you were talking about uh, the effect of those that are not able to pay um, their speeding tickets and, and their licenses becoming revoked. Uh, when someone is ready and, and they have found their way to be able to pay those court costs and they want to get their um, license um, reinstated, are there fees associated with that as well? And what are they? Right. So once you get over the courtroom hurdles that lead to your license being suspended, you have to pay the DMV reinstatement fees. And so just to get your license reinstated, the, the base fee is $65. But then if you fail to surrender your driver's license when it was suspended, um, there's a, an, an additional $50 service fee. So for most people, um, getting their driver's license back from the DMV would be $115. And, and what we see is that even after people get through the courtroom hurdles, they can't uh, pay that $115 fee because it's not waivable. You, you have to pay it. It's a mandatory fee. And so even though people are legally able to reinstate their license, they can't because of that unpaid money. And I've had several clients come back and say, you said I could get my driver's license back. I had this fee. I can't pay it, so I'm never going to be able to get my driver's license back. And then what do they do? They drive they without driving, a license, right. and then they get another ticket, right. and then they're back within the criminal justice system, right. which raises another issue. So, Keisha, if you have someone who's low income, and let's say, for example, we've got someone who, um, you know, driving, and so this is, you know, a very low level offense um, in terms of speeding. We've all been there, I'm sure. Um, and they're in a situation where they can't drive, they can't be employed. What do some of these individuals find themselves doing in terms of being able to support their family? Right. So I think there's there kind of a lot of different alternatives that people may have in that case, or very few alternatives people may have. Um, so one may just be um, kind of increasingly relying on family members that might be 
uh, living with family members or other things if they can't afford housing in other ways. It could be that if someone um, can't afford to uh, get the money uh, legally, then they may find a legal means. Uh, the other thing that is important to note is that there are a lot of uh, uh, jobs that require someone to have a driver's license. And so if you don't have it, mm -hmm. if you don't have one, then you may, uh, you'll have very limited options in terms of what your your job prospects could be anyway. And, and so when we think about it, we've got a system that is um, causing people to, who might not otherwise be involved in the criminal justice mm -hmm. system becoming involved because the court system is just uh, making it incredibly difficult and impossible for them to survive. So you can either pay for your restoration of your driver's license or you can pay rent or you mm -hmm. can pay food or you can, and you've got to make these tough decisions and, if, and we all need money to survive. And so um, if the court system is making it even more of a burden, then you do have people who might turn to, as you noted, Keisha, illegal means, which then is just, you know, a path that we don't want anyone to have to go down. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about, um, Laura, you were, you had mentioned that some judges that you all are, are, are suggesting and, and strongly encouraging judges to ask individuals about their ability to pay before they're imposing these fines and, and costs. Can you talk about those efforts and, and how they're coming along? Um, yes. Yeah, so we try to get uh, on the agenda at all the judges conferences um, to kind of talk about this you know a lot of judges are now understanding the devast I mean they see it every day <laughs> so they see the devastation of criminal justice debt they see the same people coming into their courtroom because they have to extend them on probation or they have to you know deal with another charge for driving while license revoked because of an underlying ticket and so we, we try to get on the agenda talk speak to the judges about how what they can do to kind of curb some of this spiraling debt um, devastation that's out there, and and we encourage to judges to use the statutes that are out there. Um, we we usually point to three statutes: um, 7A304, which Keisha was talking about earlier, allows a judge to waive debt or waive um, the court cost at the time of sentencing upon a, a finding of just cause. And, and that should usually that's just an affidavit showing that the person's financial abilities or inabilities, and then being able to put that in the file to support waiving that debt. Uh, we also sometimes for, in the traffic realm rely on a statute, uh, North Carolina 2024.1, and that allows the judge to make a finding that the the non-payment of an individual's traffic ticket was not willful and it was based on an inability to pay, and that there is enough facts in the case to support a finding that the, the fine should be remitted. And then the last statute that we rely on is 15A1363, and that's just a finding that it is the proper administration of justice to fully resolve the case, and we, and we determined that fully resolving the case would be waiving the fees so that the person can move on with their life. Now, how, how does a person who is in court petition or know to petition the judge for a waiver of these uh, court costs? Um, if they're unrepresented, you, yeah. you're saying? So 
what what we encourage, we're, what we're advocating for is for judges to just not require the, the individual to make that uh, assertion to for it to be a judge initiated effort because a lot of unfortunately a lot of people who are unrepresented don't know that they can ask for a waiver or a reduction of their court costs or fines and so we're asking the judge to take the judge or the DA's office this is some efforts that we've been doing in Durham County and surrounding counties to just go ahead and initiate that inquiry on their own the judge acts whether the person's able to pay. Yeah, but but normally you would not expect that that is an obligation of the judge. Right. You know, that the judge is, is there to impose these costs and to follow what uh, the law is. And uh, unless it is an extraordinary judge with a concern mm-hmm. for the people that's before them, then typically that question is not going to be asked right. of, 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 of the person. So if if the judge is an asked, and then the uh, DA is uh, in an adversarial position mm-hmm. uh, with the person because they brought them into court and they persecute them uh, in the uh, first instance. So you wouldn't expect them. So what other information is available to a person who is in court about the possibility or the uh, availability of uh, this this fee waiver. Outside of extraordinary instances, there's probably not a lot of information out there. A lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. So, Keisha, um, uh, Laura had mentioned that once the law, the shame report law went into (laughs) effect, uh, you know, waivers went from approximately 80,000 to, you know, 20 some odd thousand. So that's an incredible decrease in a relatively short um, span. Um, so what what else can we do or, and, and what's your organization doing to try and um, reverse this trend uh, and to make sure that um, low-income individuals aren't harder hit because of the, the circumstances that we see in the criminal justice system? Right. So, I mean, one start is really uh, promoting public awareness, making sure people understand um, the issues uh, that are related to fines and fees. And particularly just to to go back to the um, comment on soft on crime is being very clear, um, particularly when it comes to court fees, that they are not intended as punishment. Mm -hmm. And so it should not be a burden in that sense. It should not be punishing someone Um, but so yeah so there's this starting with public awareness uh, people educating themselves listening to this show um, doing their own research Um, my organization has also uh, compiled uh, news on this issue from around the country over the past year and so you're able to visit our website to get more information Another thing that I say people can do, um, the bold and the connected can certainly talk to their state and local officials and ask them some of those tough questions, particularly during upcoming election cycles. And that was part of what we did with this past election cycle is um, engage community in, in different forums and events where they could kind of giving them some questions that they may want to ask uh, some of their elected officials. And um, then I, there's a lot that individuals can do on the very front end of all of this and that comes to investing in community so there are a lot of ways that we can help prevent some of these challenges by supporting organizations that are doing good work um, by um, supporting uh, 
organizations that serve youth, particularly in communities that are most impacted by this, um, supporting reentry organizations, uh, North Carolina Community Bail Fund of Durham, other spaces, other ways that individuals who may not be as involved can can engage in this. And then I guess one thing that we we do have, many of us have, is the our our vote. And so mm-hmm. when it comes to a, an upcoming election cycle and a judge is running and they're not willing to um, stand for the people in this way, then let's not let's vote that judge out. Right. You know, one, one of the things that I want our audience to uh, realize is that uh, Laura gave us this number of uh, 15,000 people unlicensed. Uh, over two years, that that's just a small piece mm-hmm. of this uh, this equation because there are a lot of people who have been convicted of other offenses and are unable, and that, and that number is much larger than fifteen thousand. And I think earlier uh, you mentioned one point two million people statewide uh, are unlicensed, but even that number right. is, uh, is is huge. And and I don't want to minimize the uh, scope of the problem that uh, that we're dealing with here. So this is not this the uh, unfortunate few, you know, that end up uh, in this kind of, uh, of situation, but it, uh, it's, it's pretty broad uh, with respect to the scope and, uh, and volume of people who uh, get, get caught up uh, in this. So anybody who goes to court, and they are literally uh, millions of people in North Carolina who mm-hmm. ends up in court, mm-hmm. And if you end up in court, you unless you are found not guilty, you're going to have uh, this uh, issue to deal with. Or uh, unless, or even if you are found, you know, guilty and you or you plead, um, if you've got the means, and and that's what mm-hmm. this kind of goes back to. If you're able to, um, you know, write a check mm-hmm. right there in court, um, you know, it, it it costs to be poor, right? right? And so we talk about the poor penalty. Mm-hmm. And if you can't write a check, then you, if you do an installment, you got to pay an installment fee. And if you're late with that, then you got the late fee. We've got all of these additional um, fees and penalties that people suffer just because of their economic situation. And then when we layer on race, it becomes even more devastating and something that we all have to recognize as a, as a community, particularly African-American community. Because if you're poor, that means that you're, it's more likely that it's your neighborhood that's being over-policed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to be stopped. And, you know, it's, so it's just this, you know, kind of, um, like I said, the horrible gift that just keeps on giving. Well, as, as an example of that, uh, uh, Laura, you mentioned that uh, I think we were off air that uh, 80% of the 15,000 people mm-hmm. uh, in African Durham American. are, are African yeah. Americans. And in uh, Wake County, it's, it's uh, about 60. 60 about 60% yeah. uh, percent of the people who, and I don't know what the numbers are. In, uh, in in Wake County, but uh, those of you who are in our audience and you are an African American, the uh, likelihood of your ending up in that situation uh, is significantly higher right. uh, mm-hmm. than it would be for a person of means or a person uh, who uh, uh, who are white uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in our in our system. So, uh, wow, this mm-hmm. is uh, how can people get in touch with you all for? Uh, assistance, uh, 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 educational uh, programs, and just conversations about what's uh, what's going on. So in terms of education and just 
if you're interested in additional information, you can visit my organization's website. That's www.reinvestmentpartners.org. And there we have um, our report as well as news articles um, from around the country, uh, one pager on what you can do and how you, questions you might be able to ask your elected officials and some other materials that um, may be of interest. And I have a, um, a couple of things that I want to um, end with. So uh, as was mentioned before, we identified about 15,000 cases in Durham where people had uh, suspended driver's license for unpaid traffic tickets. What we plan to do um, in, in conjunction with the DA's office in the next 12 to 18 months is ask the Durham County Courthouse to kind of go through that backlog and waive all that debt. Um, and because it's so many traffic tickets, it's going to be hard to notify everyone who has benefited already from the program or stands to benefit from the program. So if you're out there and you believe that you could possibly benefit from the program, I encourage you to visit our website um, that has that information. It's secondchancedriving.org. Uh, you can go to that website, plug in your name and birthday, and it will let you know if you have benefited from that. Um, if you want just general information about the DEER program and the driver's license efforts that we have going on in Durham, I encourage you to visit our website. We are DEERDurham.org, and we do both driver's license restoration and expungement work. And then if you just want to know um, some of the things that the North Carolina Justice Center is doing and the uh, policy advocacy we're doing around second chances and making the life better for people with criminal records, I encourage you to check out NorthCarolinaSecondChance.org. Just wanted to note, you know, both of our organizations are a part of the statewide fines and fees coalition. And so that group is also continuing to move in these efforts. And so you should hear from us as a broader coalition shortly on some additional opportunities and ways to get involved in this issue. And a lot of this begins with uh, challenging these uh, legislators mm -hmm. uh, to uh, make some uh, changes in the law. And it can be done because it was the legislators who uh, caused this uh, situation to exist in the first instance. So uh, what they have done, uh, they can undo. And uh, so we uh, certainly urge you uh, out in our listening audience to uh, take this uh, to uh, those legislators when they come to uh, ask you for their votes uh, because you can be impacted as well as your family members. Uh, and uh, once you are impacted, then oftentimes it's too late uh, to uh, get from under the threat. So, you know, we need to be active in dealing with this issue. Okay, and we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Laura Holland. She is a staff attorney at the North Carolina Justice Center. And Keisha Millette, she is a community advocate for the Reinvestment Partners. And we'd like to thank you, as always, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, please drop us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.